update. Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by IcarusFC.com. This is podcast number 289. With that number, we'll give a shout out to Maicon of Brazil. She scored the 289th Women's World Cup goal back in 1999. In the final Group B game that year, Brazil was trailing Germany 3-2. In the fourth minute of second half stoppage time, Maicon scored the equalizer to tie the game 3-3 and give Brazil the top spot in the group. This meant that the Germans would have to face USA in the quarterfinals instead of Nigeria, and Brazil got to play Nigeria. You can check out the video of the highlights from that Brazil-Germany game on my Woso Nostalgia YouTube channel. All right, two chats today. First, I caught up with my friend Rich Laverty, freelance soccer writer or football writer based in the UK. We talked about the status of the FAWSL, also about Phil Neville's recent announcement about stepping down from the England head coach, but not until next year, and a few other England topics that I think we both got pretty passionate about. And then I chatted with Woso photographer Daniela Porcelli, who's based in Switzerland, but travels all over shooting the women's game. She told me about how she became a sports photographer and also how she became the co-founder of OneGoal.org along with Swedish goalkeeper Hedvig Lidl. Lidval, excuse me. And you can check out their website, onegoal.org. Uh, they're doing a lot of fundraising right now for COVID-19 relief, but their their charity predates COVID. It's been around about a year and a half, and they're offering a lot of great exclusive women's soccer uh, player-worn gear. So be sure to check that out. And of course, in between the two chats is the gensplaining segment. This week, uh, I try to explain a few details about NWSL roster rules. Um, there's no way I'm going to say it's comprehensive, but I hope to shed a, uh, a little light on a, on a few of the rules. And of course, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at MixZone, and that's two X's in MixZone, and also at KeeperNotes. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Rich Laverty, freelance soccer writer extraordinaire based in the UK, who is here to talk with me about the status of the FA Women's Super League, Phil Neville, if we still remember who that is, and also the shift for Euro 2021 to 2022. So, Rich, how are you doing over there? Yeah, we're good. Um, fingers crossed. Um, I'm well, family's well, friends are well, colleagues are well. So, yeah, as as we were saying off camera, it's just a little bit um, boring at the moment. Obviously, having no football. Now, I mean, how does how does an Englishman survive without football? I mean, you know, the the Americans, most of us can remember a time when we didn't have any, right? But can you? I can't. No, but strangely. I haven't found it too bad. I mean, obviously working within the sport, there is still always something going on because of the fact, obviously, we're having these constant discussions around, you know, what is going to happen with the Women's Super League. And as you touched upon, Phil Neville, obviously, even though it feels like it was about three years ago now, got announced as leaving during this whole lockdown. So we had all that to talk about and potential replacements. So it's not actually been too bad, fingers crossed. And so what what is the latest on the status of the FAWSL? 
Um, so I think we are near the end game now, fingers crossed again, because it's rumbled on probably a bit longer than I think a lot of people wanted it to. I think a lot of people basically got to a point where they were fed up. Um, yeah, we should know early next week what the situation is. The clubs have been in constant contact with the FA. The FA have essentially given the clubs, you know, give us your feedback. What do you think should happen in terms of how the season ends? And, you know, should it be voided? Should it be on points per game? If it is on points per game, should there be promotion? Should there be relegation? Um, So all the clubs in the WSL and the championship um, will offer their feedback. There'll be uh, an FA meeting early next week where they will essentially take that decision. Um, Hopefully they take the club's feedback on board. Um, And yeah, hopefully, again, fingers crossed again, we will know (laughs) very early next week, finally, um, what the situation is. I mean, we know it's going to end. I think everybody knows now the season is over. Um, That is as good as confirmed. It is now obviously just working out how to end it. And we've seen, um, we've even seen articles here in ESPN saying that the players are, you know, what last week was like resigned to like, it's not, you know, they're, they're, they're ready for it to be done. Right. Especially the ones, uh, you know, that want to go home that aren't based in the UK or, or similarly, I was reading how like Bunny Shaw, you know, who plays in France, she's at home in Jamaica. And if they called Mm -hmm. her back, once she got to France, she'd have to be in quarantine two weeks. And during those two weeks, she could then be told, Oh, we're not doing it, you know? And like, and it wouldn't be as easy, right. To find a flight from Jamaica to, to France. So yeah, it like, like you said, it's, it's, it's basically done, but, but I guess the question is how, you know, are are you going to call the season? So, it, you know, if it were up to you, what would be, what would be your plan? Um, would you have promotion relegation going into next season? How, how would you determine the winner? It's an incredibly tough situation. I mean, they've already said there won't be any relegation from the championship because the leagues below that have been completely voided. Um, so really now it's, it's strange because obviously this points per game situation, it actually it doesn't affect the championship and it doesn't affect 99% of the WSL. Unfortunately, the only two teams it does affect are the top two. Chelsea would jump ahead of Manchester City, which is a little bit awkward, you know, when you have to award the title probably to a team that isn't actually currently top of the league. Um, so, yeah, it's something amusing, I suppose, in a way that that is the only two positions in the whole two divisions it affects. Um I think promotion is a little bit easier because Aston Villa are six points clear at the top of the championship. They've only got six games to go. In the WSL, it's much tougher. There are more games to go. I think there's eight or nine games, depending on the teams. Some teams have games in hand. Liverpool are only one point off the bottom, and they do still have to play the team um, above them. So it's very, very difficult because... I think you have to do neither or both. I think I don't think you can promote without relegating. I mean, I think there's some good reasons to do that personally, and I'll come on to those. But I, I think it has to be, you know, you either promote and relegate, or you, or you do neither. So it, it's hard on Liverpool because it is so close. But at the end of the day, if you have to take it on the league table as it is, I think 
you know, Liverpool will be relegated. But if they decide not to, if they say Aston Villa are going to go up um, and Liverpool stay where they are, you have that awkwardness of a 13-team WSL next season and we don't really want an odd number. But Right, right. Yeah, it, it gives the opportunity, though, the next season to have two teams promoted. At the moment, there's only one team promoted every year. Obviously, you could have two up and then one down, which would take you from 13 to 14. Um, and as well, it, it would put less teams in the championship next season. There'd only be 10 teams. But, you know, if the season is interrupted uh, or, you know, it gets shortened again for, for whatever reason, you know, the fact that actually there's less games might actually play in their favour because the championship can't really play midweek. Obviously, everyone's part-time, everyone's got jobs. So if there were a couple of less games next season, it might not be the worst thing in the world. But yeah, I think that is the the sticking point at the moment. You know, yeah, promotion's a little bit easier to decide because Aston Villa are clear, but it's so close at the bottom of the WSL and there's so many games left to play. So I think... Um, if they go on points per game, obviously Chelsea will win the league either way. So, and and Chelsea and Man City will qualify for the Champions League. I think that's quite a simple one to decide. I think it is all going to be about um, the promotion and relegation. And is there a chance that they would just kind of call it null and void for the nineteen twenty season? You know, and just say we're not. You know, everything's going to stay as is going into twenty twenty one. You know, where it's like all teams stay where they are? Yeah, I I don't think they'll null and void it. I think UEFA have said that's not really an option because if you actually null and void a league, there is no league table. So actually we couldn't have teams then in the Champions League uh, um, next season. So you can... You can cancel the league and not give the title if they decide. I think in the Netherlands they've done that because Ajax and PSV were joint top. So they said, look, you will go into the Champions League, but we're not awarding a title because it was too close. They might decide to do that in the WSL because it is so close between Chelsea and Manchester City. They might say, we're not awarding a title, but you are both going to be in the Champions League next season. Um, I don't think they'll null and void it. I think UEFA have basically told every European league it has to be done on sporting merit some way. And most leagues at the moment are going on points per game. So I think that's what we'll see here. And like I said, I think it's more at the bottom um, where the issues are than, than the top. So what um, is the plan for Champions League? I mean, I know they basically cancelled the rest of the current season, but do they plan to just go on and do a 2021 season you know, maybe yeah. smaller, but... Yeah, we haven't heard a lot about the Champions League, actually. There are rumours that they are going to try and get this one finished, maybe in August. Um, I think it would have to change format. They're talking about maybe just doing everything over one leg or having sort of a mini tournament over the course of a couple of weeks, obviously like the NWSL is talking about, where they just get the teams in one location, play the remaining games, and that's it. It's done in sort of 10 days because I think we're at the quarterfinal stage now anyway, so there's not too many games left. And then obviously they can get on with next seasons. How next season is going to look, I mean, yeah, there's so much travel involved, obviously, at the start of the tournament when you've got maximum teams in the in the competition. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I think everyone is so focused on 
the domestic leagues and getting the domestic league sorted that nobody's really thought about the Champions League. Um, but there are rumours that, yeah, they will get this season's done at some point. I think UEFA want to get it done. Um, but it doesn't sound like it's going to be until probably August at the earliest. Yeah, I mean, there's still so much that all you can do is say TBD, you know. Yeah. To, you know, who, who knows? Let's see. Got to wait for more info. Um, and that must be so hard on the players. And I think that's why we saw some coverage of the players. It's like, we're just ready to move on, whatever moving on, you know, means. Um, now, is there a risk that any of these uh, women's teams would not be around for the next season? Uh, I, are, are any of the players at risk of not being paid? Uh, I hope not. Um, we did lose a team in the third tier, AFC filed, who disbanded their women's team. But at the moment, in the WSL and the championship, that hasn't happened. Fingers crossed it remains that way. Um, no team has come out and said anything. I mean, there are financial strains, obviously, and but there hasn't been any anyone come out and say, you know, we're in like danger, you know, in the next couple of weeks kind of thing. So, and I think that's another reason why as well you won't null and void it because there is prize money in the Women's Super League this season for the first time. And again, if you null and void it, again, there's no league table to base prize money off. So prize money wouldn't get handed out. Barclays now with their sponsorship, you know, they give clubs a fee every season. Um, So hopefully that will help. Some of the championship clubs are closely linked with um, men's Premier League teams. Some of the independent clubs have their own sponsors who are still backing them. So, yeah, fingers crossed. I think that's a big reason of why we need this decision soon because clubs can then put this season to one side. They can start planning on next season's budgets, which were probably already set. You, mm-hmm. you, you tend to set your budget you know, quite a while in advance. So I think the worry was obviously as, as long as this season went on, they were going over budget and over budget. And now, hopefully... They can put that to one side, start to look at next season, whenever that will be. Um, but yeah, again, I'm, I'm saying fingers crossed a lot tonight. But <laughs> again, yeah, we uh, we hope nobody nobody goes, um, and at the moment, nobody has. So yeah, hope it stays that way. Well, one of the things I've been thinking about lately, um, you know, with everything that's going on and and waiting for NWSL to you know announce what what their next move is is. I feel like women's pro soccer is uniquely positioned right now to survive this in a way that some of the larger sports and by larger, I mean, you know, more heavily funded sports might not be, you know, when your entire payroll is, you know, less than the salary, uh, you know, is probably equal to the minimum salary of, one person on a major league baseball team, you know, like I, I feel, you know, here are clubs that were already on a, on a good budget in some cases, didn't have a lot of revenue streams coming in yet. Anyway, you know, maybe they can, they can handle this. I mean, obviously the outlier would be Portland where they've just lost lots and lots and lots of revenue. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think about for the, the English clubs where, you know, what's the average attendance been, for the league games, 1,500, 2,000 people, you know, like the, the loss 
you don't have the huge ticket loss. And in most cases, you didn't have much merchandising yet either. So you're not suddenly having those, those huge pockets. I know it's kind of a, a, a way to flip the, the current, the, the, the common narrative of, you know, will women's soccer survive? It's like, really the question right now is, you know, will every sport survive? And I think it's going to be a different story for each sport, but I, I feel like women's soccer, at least in the UK and in NWSL might have a better chance. Yeah. I, I, again, like you said earlier, it's kind of all ifs, buts and maybes at the minute, but I think that there is potentially some truth to that down the line because like you said, the the attendances are much lower, so the clubs don't rely on match day revenue kind of as much as the men. You know, if if you're losing seventy thousand, you know, ticket sales every week, and obviously thousands and thousands in, um, you know, season tickets, then that's a big issue. But yeah, like you say, you know, championship clubs particularly that are losing, you know, only a few hundred, it's maybe not the bigger impact, and I think. You know, you have to also look at, you know, down the line, sponsors, you know, sponsors are looking at getting involved in football and they don't anymore have the, the resources to pay. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if even sponsors for the league, you know, and the cup competitions, they might think, well, you know what, the men's game now, it's a little bit out of our, you know, price bracket. And they might look to the women's game. Fans might look to the women's game that can no longer afford, you know, 500 pound season tickets and, you know, 70 right. pound tickets to go and watch one game. So that might be something that materializes. Obviously all that relies on fans actually being able to go to games again, some point in the future. Uh, but you're right. You know, there, there might be potential down the line where sponsors particularly look at the women's game and think that's now more within our budget and we're going to invest in, in the women's game. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I'm hoping is, is going to play out because I just feel like, like I said, FAWSL and NWSL are uniquely positioned in a way that, you know, the larger, older sports aren't. Um, but moving on from from club to country, um, and and I like that you said it's like it feels like forever, you know, the, the Phil Neville news. Um, but that was kind of on the tip of everyone's tongue. The last match day of She Believes, I was up there in Frisco, you know, right before a lot of the big shutdowns in the U.S. happened. Um, and listening to, there were several uh, uh, reporters from from the UK in the press box, and I could hear them, you know, criticizing Neville left and right. Um, so, of course, what was it? A couple weeks ago, we got the news that he's going to step away after 2021, 2022. What's what's the scoop? Yeah, I can't actually remember when it was. It, it, it some respects it feels like two weeks ago. In some respects, it feels like about a year ago. I mean, even she believes was like only two months ago, and like that's ridiculous. Um, yeah, she, yeah. She believes feels like a long time ago. Um, yeah, it's another confusing situation, really. And I said on another podcast a few weeks ago that I'm just a little bit confused by it all. I mean, his contract is up in 2021. That was nothing new, and a lot of people expected him to leave in 2021 anyway. Obviously, that was initially meant to be after both the Olympics and the European Championships. But why they've announced it now, I'm not really sure, because there's a lot of managers in the same uh, the same kind of situation. You know, most contracts are tailored to 2021 because that was when the Euros were going to be. Right. And for those three nations at the Olympics, I'm not sure what the Sweden situation is. I definitely know um, Serena, the, the Netherlands manager, she's out of contract next year. But, you know, they haven't made any sort of announcement. Um, 
So, yeah, it was a little bit strange to come out and say it, but not offer the clarity on, you know, is he going to be in charge of Team GB? Um, you know, the players don't know. He doesn't know. His contract is up around the time of the Olympics where they've been rescheduled. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just a little bit confused by what the motivation was behind the announcement because it's actually raised more questions than it has answers because we're all sat here now saying when you know who is going to take team gb now there's several caveats because there's still no guarantee the olympics go ahead right um we don't know obviously when there will even be able to be international camps you know obviously you might be able to have camps but you probably can't have games at the minute you know teams can't really travel abroad you don't know whether there'll be a, a she believes next year for example so it's all well and good saying bring a new manager in now but there's not really a lot of point if they can't actually do anything with the team but I really hope they clarify it soon because you can't bring a new manager in two weeks before an Olympic Games. It either has to they they have to commit to Phil Neville or they have to get a new manager in soon. Like they can't allow Phil to run his contract down unless he is going to be guaranteed Team GB manager. And if he's not, they have to bring a new manager in soon because they need time to prepare the team. Well, we we even saw before um, the whole shutdown that uh, it didn't seem like England had many plans for, or that the FA or maybe I guess the Olympic Committee had many plans for having any actual fixtures for Team GB before going into the Olympics. It sounded like he was just doing his England thing and then it would be thrown together at the last minute. Um, you know, and I know there's varying factors behind all of that, but uh, back to your original point, I think it is really strange to make that announcement now, right? Like, is it is it some distraction? Are they trying to distract us from something else, or did did he like? No, we need to announce that. You know, I I don't know. It's it's. I mean, I think they rushed to announce it because it leaked. It leaked in the media, but I just think they need to offer some clarity soon on what the Team GB situation is. Um, because even the players don't know. The players don't know who's going to be taking them. And I just don't understand it. I really don't understand it. I mean, like I said, they have to either bring someone in now so they can prepare. And if they don't, it's going to get to a certain point where you say, well, we're too far in now. You know, if you get to March, April next year and Phil is still the England manager, at that point for me, it's too late to make that change. It's too late to say, right, we're going to bring someone else in now to take Team GB when you've only got two or three months left to the tournament. So I think it has to be sorted probably this year, you know, this side of New Year. Um, if we get into next year and it's still rumbling on, I think you've just got to stick with Phil and then make the change after the Olympics. And what do you think... Um... How do you think the shift for the Euro from 2021 to 2022 and, of course, still hosted by England, how is that going to be affected? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a shame for a start. You know, we were all looking forward to it, obviously hosting our own European championships. But it's weird because, like you say, if if we don't bring a new manager in until next year, it's not a lot of time to for them to sort of get used to the squad, you know, when you've got a big tournament and there's a lot of pressure when you host your own tournament um, to succeed. So for me, it's more interesting from the player's point of view because we're now going into a period where there's not really an easy transition phase. You've got Olympics, Euros, World Cup, 
And then you're straight back into if the next Olympics and next Euros stay where they are, you've got potentially five tournaments in five consecutive summers. And right. there's, no e- there's no easy way in that to say, well, now we're going to start to ease players out. I mean, we have a lot of players in the squad that are over the age of 30. And initially I was looking at the Euros thinking, you know what, they'll all hang on. They all want to play their own Euros. And then after that, they'll think, well, it's two years to the next World Cup. You know, right. our time is done now and we're going to move on. But if they get to 2022, you're instantly going to think, well, it's only a year to the next World Cup now. You know, I'll stick around a little longer and then you might get stuck with players that are not capable of performing anymore because they're now 34 or 35 and you also, you know, you hamper the young players coming through. So I think the new manager has to be very forthright and very strong on managing the squad and and managing the evolution of the squad because everything now is really bunched up and there's not an ideal gap in the schedule to make that big transition between phasing out your older players and bringing through the younger players, which is a period that I think England are now very much entering into. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see that for a lot of national teams, you know, especially the U.S. with the Olympics being pushed back. And, you know, the U.S. already had several players who have, you know, two to three World Cups and two to three Olympics under their belt, you know, and you could see it's like, you know, that they were eyeing retirement after 2020. And, you know, who knows who knows what that does? Do they do they hang on? Do they step away now? Um, and and like you said, it, it's still uncertain if the Olympics do get played in in 2021, mm-hmm. um, and that you know over the the years we've you know we've evolved these pretty elaborate soccer calendars, both for men and women. I feel like the women's calendar has finally like stabilized, right? Like we had a couple of World Cups that were in the fall, right? You know, like like there's 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 a nice pattern to it um and and now it's kind of getting thrown off again so yeah your point about that you could ostensibly have five tournaments in five summers you know or you know how does you know what if the the men's world cup which right now is is set for november december 2022 you know what if that got shifted back i mean thankfully i guess it's nice it's already six months later than it would be right um, yeah. But yeah, there, there's so many pieces to the puzzle. And I, I was relieved to see that that FIFA announced that they are going to make a decision on the 2023 World Cup next month. Of course, that's still ridiculously late. <laughs> to, you know, three years sounds like a lot, but when they're expanding the size of the tournament and yada, yada. But I was just relieved that it wasn't going to get pushed back any, any, anymore. So last thoughts for you know, where football is in the UK right now, women's football, of course. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's so hard to say now because obviously we've been robbed of sort of what was a, a really exciting end to the season. You know, there was going to be a really good title battle. We would have had the FA Cup final, which is always a great day out at Wembley. We would have had Team GB at the Olympics, um, sort of taking that momentum on from the World Cup, I think. I don't know. For me, I think England at the moment, obviously the next managerial appointment will be very important in terms of where we go in the future. And there's been a lot of talk the last week or so about our game plan for growth, like there always is, and more girls getting involved and things that are getting better, you know, off the field. And 
that's just part of me that keeps thinking like I've watched England lose three semi-finals in a row now and <laughs> I sort of keep thinking like you can grow your game as much as you want through sponsors through marketing but you know the best way of growing your game is to win something and you know you guys know that the attention that you would get over there when right. the USA win we just seem to we celebrate anything you know we'll celebrate coming third or fourth and I think now like four years ago that was acceptable you know we went into a world cup where there were no expectations whatsoever and and we came third and it was great and it was rightly celebrated but yeah like that isn't accept you know Phil Neville came in and everyone said oh he's a big name you know he'll really grow the pro and a lot of people have said it even since he announced he was leaving that you know he grew the profile of the game and you know, after the World Cup last year, I remember being on the train home the day after the final and obviously you guys were celebrating and, you know, we were talking about how great our TV audiences were and that we were getting record figures. And I thought, like, how long do we keep banging the drum about this, you know, and keep celebrating things that are happening off the field whilst kind of ignoring the fact that we've gone backwards on it, you know? And I got frustrated again when we played Germany at Wembley in November because we had a great crowd. You know, it was a great occasion. I was there and we had 78,000 fans, I think it was, but we didn't play well. And yet after the game, everyone was saying what a great success it was, what a great occasion it was. And I thought Phil Neville talks a lot about catching the USA and, and matching their mentality. And I don't think we're anywhere near matching that mentality when we're we're coming out of a game like that and and talking about what a success was. I don't think the US would ever view a home defeat to Germany as any sort of success, no matter what crowds you get or how many people are watching on TV. So I've been in the women's game a long time now and I keep feeling like I'm hearing about growth and growth this and growth that and I don't think the game needs to grow. I think it's grown. I think the fact that you get 78,000 at Wembley shows it's grown. I think the fact that you get 11 million people watching your semi-final on TV shows it's grown. I don't think we need to consistently worry about growing it. I think we need to worry about winning games. At the end of the day, we've won four out of our last 11 matches or something like that. Um, And at the end of the day, the best way of growing it is to win the World Cup or to win the Euros or to win a Team GB gold medal. So the next manager for me, I i don't want someone who is going to come in and, and raise the profile of the game again. I want someone who's going to come in and win, you know, whether yes. that be Jill Ellis or, or Emma Hayes or Casey Stoney or whoever. The only way we're going to grow the game is by winning a tournament. And we seem to keep coming up with reasons why these defeats are still viewed as a, a success. And to be honest... Like I said, five years ago, it was okay because expectations were different then. But I'm not in a position where I personally am that bothered about the TV figures. I want to see England win the World Cup. Um, I don't want to see them lose another semifinal. Well, I, I interviewed Rachel Daly last week for the Houston Dash podcast, and it was all fan-submitted questions. And, of course, through the questions about the World Cup, and one of them was like, what you know, what were your big memories of the World Cup? And one thing she was really stuck on, you know, she's like, it was an incredible experience, except losing that way, I, you know, I never want to experience that again. And she, she referenced that several times, right? Like, for her, the only positive about the World Cup was that her family was able to see her start 
against, I think, Japan in the group stage, right? But, but like, no, it's, it's like that's that's sticking in her craw, and and I and I like that, right? Like that she's she's not towing the party line of, yeah, but it's good, you know, like you're saying, it's good progress. Really, it's like no, she's a competitor. You know, England has a great team. They weren't they weren't happy. You know? Yeah, I, I think if you offered the England, um, I can't remember what the attendance was when we played the US in Lyon last summer, but obviously it was a very big crowd. Um, it was sold out. I, I was there. Yeah, I think if you offered England the chance and said, look, you will lose that game in front of 60,000 fans, but if there's 1,000 fans there, you'll win it, but it won't help grow the game because there's only 1,000 fans watching. Right. I think you would you would take winning the game you know, at the end of right. the day, because right. like you said, nobody wants that feeling. So yeah, you know, I hope rest of the players feel like that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing both. Don't get me wrong. I'm not against, you know, seeing the crowds get bigger and seeing more sponsors, but I just it's, feel it's like... An I hear, I, it's an old yeah, narrative. It's an old Yeah, I feel like I hear more about that than I do about England's performances. I almost yeah. feel like it's used as a bit of a smokescreen for when we play badly. We kind of find a positive in every situation. And I think we've moved on from that now. The game has moved on and England have moved on. England are now a top team that have top players. You know, the narrative for me has moved on from five years ago. But And I think fans are getting that way as well. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong, like I said, with going to games and, and getting selfies and getting autographs and being close with the players. I don't think that's something that the women's game should ever lose, but I don't think it should be immune from criticism and bad performances right. because I guarantee, I mean, I watch from afar, but every time the USA, I say every time, on the odd occasion the US lose a football match, it's like full meltdown over yes. there. Yes, yes. So, whereas <laughs> we, we, we seem to lose like every other game at the moment and nobody seems that bothered. Uh, yeah. Whereas you guys have that mentality of every defeat is an absolute... Like, I mean, Jill Ellis won the World Cup in 2015, and like a year later, people were calling for her to be sacked. Exactly, exactly. We haven't, and, we and haven't that's, won it's anything. It's turning that corner, right? Where it's, it's like, it's about performance. And it, it reminds me of when I went to Trinidad to see the final Women's World Cup qualifier, uh, December 2014. It was Trinidad hosting Ecuador, and it was sold out at, at the stadium there in Port of Spain. And it was basically 25 years to the week from that historic game, U.S. at Trinidad, where U.S. won and qualified for the World Cup and, you know, the first time in 40 years. So it's like sellout crowd. Everyone's into it, cheering for the women. They, they lose the last minute. Um, but I remember talking to some of the local reporters afterwards, and they said, you know, they're like, this crowd is great, but... They're like, listen, we lost. And listen, everybody is still out there partying. They said, when we lost in 1989, when the men lost in 1989, it was dead silent. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so it's it's like, you know, treating it seriously. It's, it's like, no, don't just go, oh, well, it's good that we tried. It's like, no, we wanted to win. We came so close to qualifying, you know, kind of the, kind of the same thing as you're saying about, you know, Neville after losing to Germany going, well, but we've done this. It's like, no not good enough but anyway rich thanks so much for for taking the time to to get me up to date on the fawsl and the phil neville situation and it's going to be really interesting to see how all of these different pieces uh fit together over the coming months and and even the coming years 
Yeah, it will be, definitely. Time for a little gensplaining. This week's topic, NWSL roster rules. Well, at least some of the roster rules. Based on the current rules, and when I say current, the rules that have been in existence since last season, here's the basic setup for rosters per club. You must have at least 20 players signed, minimum 20 players signed, active players at any one time. You can have no more than 22 players active signed at any one time. And that's basically once the season starts. Right now we're in this weird limbo where some of these, uh, some of these maximums don't apply. You're also allowed to have up to four supplemental players signed. So you're looking at the ability for each club to carry up to 26 players. Um, it might not sound like a lot, but when you figure that in 2018, the max that a team could carry was 20, uh, that's an addition of six per team. That's basically 54 additional paid soccer jobs uh, that didn't exist two years ago. And the supplemental players, they make the minimum salary. Uh, so that this is not like uh, the amateur players from the previous cycle of the Women's World Cup where maybe their housing was taken care of but they weren't being paid. Supplemental player gets the minimum league salary, gets their housing taken care of, is covered by insurance, is eligible for the per diems, etc. And then each roster, each club, starts each season with four international spots. They're allowed to trade those roster spots, not the people necessarily, but the, the spot to other clubs. So right now, if you look at Orlando's roster, they've got, looks like seven international players signed. So obviously some of those players might need to be getting green cards or they might need to do some trades uh, with other clubs that don't need their international spots, or who knows, maybe they're going to trade some of those international players. Now, keep in mind that a player only requires an international spot if she does not have, one, a green card, or two, some kind of access to citizenship. So Lydia Williams, yes, she's the keeper for the Australian national team. Her mother is, Amer is American. She does not require a P1 visa to work in the United States. That's really what it comes down to is employment law. Um, so she does not require an international spot. Uh, same for Yuka Momiki, who was just signed by the rain. Uh, she was born in New York City. Uh, does not require an international spot. Um, there are several players in the league who have lived in the U.S. long enough and applied for green cards and have gotten green cards, so no longer need an international spot like Jess Fishlock. But the bulk of your international players in the USA do. Um, and the only other group of players who are technically internationals but don't require an international spot would be any Canadians who are subsidized by the Canadian Federation. So that would be obviously... Christine Sinclair, Stephanie LeBay, etc. Um, and then also related to your minimum and, and maximum roster spots, uh, if you are on the season-ending injury list, you do not um, count towards your 
team's roster count. Similarly, if you are on maternity leave, you do not count towards your team's roster spot. So again, if you look at Orlando's roster right now, and I have unofficial rosters on Google Sheets that you can access via KeeperNotes.com. You'll see that Orlando has 27 players signed right now, but one of those 27 is Alex Morgan. So technically they have 26 players who are active right now. Um, So you also think about the rain last year, lots of injuries, right? But they were able to sign players anytime someone got moved to the season-ending injury list, which is why the rain had the issue at the end of 2019 that they had basically, I think, like 29, 30 people on contract, right? So obviously not everybody could come back for 2020. So that's hopefully a helpful overview of the basics of NWSL roster rules. Um, If you go to NWSLsoccer.com and scroll all the way down at the bottom, there should be a link for roster rules. They probably haven't been updated for 2020 since everything's been in flux. Um, I know there was no intent to make major changes to any of them. And of course, these roster rules could be modified somewhat for the proposed NWSL summer tournament that we're hearing about. But otherwise, like I said, hope this was a helpful overview. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with my friend Daniela Porcelli from all the way from across the pond um, in Switzerland. Um, Hello, everyone. Really? It's a really beautiful place over there. I have not been to where you are in in Basel, but oh, my God, Geneva. I went there last summer uh, during the Women's World Cup. That was gorgeous. That's amazing. I lived in Geneva actually for a while, so uh, it's a, it's a beautiful place. Uh, I love it. The lake, the mountains, and uh, during the World Cup, it was nice weather. So I sh- I'm sure you enjoyed it. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And so you've been involved in women's soccer for a while. Tell me how you first got got involved. First got involved in women's soccer. So I have to start. I always loved soccer in general or in football, how we say it in Europe. Um, since I'm a a small baby like my dad my grandfather are huge soccer fans and of course you get involved uh, watching all the men's games and then it was actually funny the women's soccer started with me during the world cup in germany um because mm-hmm. that was the first time we had an article in switzerland in a newspaper um, about women's soccer and i noticed this i will never forget that there was a big huge image of hope solo you know, best goalkeeper in the world. That was kind of like the article. And then I'm like, oh, there's a World Cup going on. I heard about that, but let's watch it. That's how I actually started to watch every game wow. on TV. Yeah. And you've been addicted ever since. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's usually how it happens. Um, yeah. Now, how did you get involved um, taking photographs professionally at sporting events? Uh, that's also kind of funny story. I mean, I always, when I went to watch some games, um, I had like a small camera with me just to take some pictures, do some videos, uh, just to kind of have a memory. And I met, uh, one guy at Arsenal game, um, after the Arsenal women game. And he was like, ah, oh, I saw you taking pictures. Why don't you do it pitch side? And I'm like, well, I'm not a real photographer. I'm like, you know, I'm a nobody. <laughs> that's what he's like. Next time 
uh, we will figure it out with Arsenal. Next time you just come with me. Uh, I give you a professional camera. Just snap around. And that's how it started. <laughs> so I and held so, it off. <laughs> yeah. How many, so how many years have you been taking photos on actually pitch side? That was uh, beginning of 2018 at my first Arsenal women's game. Yeah, that was beginning of February 2018. So two years ago. Yeah. And you were you were at She Believes this year. I, I saw you at She Believes, uh, and you were you were able to sneak out of the country right before all of the the, the COVID nineteen um, issues. But you get to travel a lot for the photos, yes. Uh, yes, I mean it's a lot of things, of course, on my uh, on my decision. Um, it's uh, the beginning was uh, of my photography career. I would say it's a lot of investment time investment, money investment, yes. and, and then you're trying to get your clients, uh, which the last few months looked pretty well. Um, like you said, the She Believes Cup, I was uh, proud to actually work for the Spanish Federation. So I was able to follow the team and shoot all their games, which is just an incredible um, honor to do in uh, for any games in that case. So to, to move on to our, our bigger topic, um, you know, because because I met you through your photography stuff, but I realized a few weeks ago that you had this other side project, uh, OneGoal.org, that you started with Hedvig Lindvall, the Swedish goalkeeper, a couple years ago. So, okay, how did you get connected to Hedvig? And tell me about founding that charity. Um, yeah, that's also, um, I always thought it's a funny story because it's in the end, it's everything happens for a reason. You know, I really believe in that. And I had this idea, like beginning of 2018, actually I had, or even before I had idea with like, you know, charity foundation, uh, how to get involved with players who can uh, donate items and we actually reach out to fans so we can raise money. And I had this idea, I was already talking to some players, um, American player has a Riley. I also talked to her regarding this topic. So, um, but after a few months, I um, talked to a friend and he mentioned me, Hedwig, she's already doing something similar with her jerseys. She's already raising money for good causes. Just ask her for a jersey. I'm like, I cannot ask her. I mean, like, I don't know her. I, mean, I cannot just go up to uh, one of the biggest legends in the world and say, like, hey, I'm Daniela. So, <laughs> so but she, re she reminded me that we first met on 1st April 2018 at the Arsenal-Chelsea game after the game where I went up to her with my friend. So, so, so he introduced me and then I kind of, like, told her my story and she... I remember that sentence, like, just send me an email. I will get back to you. And, yeah, that was this, That was the start of kind And of she actually did get back to you over email. Yes, she got back to me because I think she, she yeah, first, I mean, when you get a kind of question like this, I mean, I'm sure she gets thousands of questions like, oh, jerseys and stuff and ideas like this. But I think she felt really comfortable and serious about my request and about my idea. And yeah, and then I think a few months later, we created the one goal, and which is online since then, actually. Yeah. So, so the idea was to create a, a unique charity kind of focusing on women's soccer. But uh, what's what's the big mission? Well, the big mission um, is uh, 
to give a platform to players who are in women's soccer, not only the top players, but also everybody who is playing, who gets the chance to um, donate an IT item and give it back, give it back to fans, followers who, um, when it's not that easy to get um, to, to get a chance to. Um, receive a jersey or a signed boot because it's women's football it's not like every week a man man player get the arsenal jersey to give it to a fan right uh, it's really unique i mean when you have a jersey of one of these players you know it's actually unique maybe you have one item per year or maybe two it depends on the squad on the team on the club so that's our message message is they donate something really special uh, fans can receive this uh, item by donation, by auctions, for example, or raffles. And the money we raise goes back mostly in the women's football, in projects where we can help and support women's football girls in amazing sports projects. That's kind of like a circle. Mm-hmm. And how do you find um, projects to help? I mean, is that uh, as players give you items to auction? Um, do they go, hey, I'd really like the revenue from this to help people in this country? Or, you know, how, how do you determine where the funds go? I mean, yeah, we, what we were speaking about with Hedwig, it's, it's really important for us to get transparency transparency where the money goes to. So we're like kind of looking for smaller organization. Of course, we can uh, donate money to like UNICEF and FIFA Football Foundation. But then we don't really know where the money goes to. But with a small right. project, um, for example, we have uh, Vicky Schnatterbeck, who is an ambassador for an organization. And when she donated something, an item to us, we were like, oh, so you have this um, organization you already work uh, with, so we can donate the money back to that. So we're trying to connect with the players when they have a charity they like. And of course, Hedwig also knows a lot of charity. So we're trying to keep it small to be transparent to our followers where the money goes. And then, of course, with um, the COVID-19 crisis happening, you guys have, have channeled a lot of the the current stuff on the website towards the, helping that. So so tell me how, how things have maybe changed a little bit the last couple of months. Exactly. So, I mean, all the crisis happened. Uh, football kind of got suspended, cancelled all around the world. And we all have... Bigger, well, not bigger problems, but every everyone just has the problems financially, uh, health problems. And so we just wanted, we were thinking about, okay, how can we help in this, that situation? Um, of course, we still want to help the projects we have, uh, which are also affected, and but they're still running. They're not, not existing anymore, but they're also affected really by this crisis. But then uh, Hedwig said, like, yeah, but who, who is really big? I mean, who is global? Who can we support? And the World Health uh, Organization, of course, is a really big player. They're doing um, amazing work during this crisis. And we also, of course, assume after the crisis, I mean, they're still existing. So it's all about when we donate money there, we know it's going to the right place where our heart at the moment is, is with it. So that's really mm-hmm. important for us, yeah. So how can fans get involved? Uh, you know, your website mentions, obviously, you can donate, you can buy things via auction, and there's, you know, there's a nice store link. that also says volunteer. How, how can fans help that way? 
Um, yeah, so to um, respond to the volunteer, uh, we are always looking for volunteers who are maybe good in graphic designing, who love to do social media, or also like who are just really amazing in kind of administration work. I mean, it's uh, just to say one thing, the one goal is all voluntary based. We are not making any money out of it. So everybody who's working behind this is doing it in their free time, next to their jobs, next to their uh, loved ones, next to their hobbies. And But it's a real business. We are really registered in the UK. Uh, so everything, every other business is doing full time. We're doing in small amount we have next. Yes. <laughs> and so the more help um, skilled people who are like, oh, I'm a lawyer. I can help you with this kind of thing. Um, Oh, I'm a good in social media. I can help doing the social media stuff. So that's kind of like the people we are looking for. And it's always great to work with volunteers. I mean, I call myself as a volunteer too. So it's just amazing to see what we can produce. I mean, it's incredible what we're doing right now. I'm so happy. <laughs> do you have Do you have some figures you can share, of, like how much money has been raised since you and Hedvig founded this? So, uh, yeah, the interesting figure just uh, before the COVID campaign, uh, Corona campaign, we made like just a little bit more than £10,000. Um, maybe for some people it doesn't sound a lot, but it's a lot money for us for doing this on a on the side and right. for doing it from scratch. We were like, yeah. like, you know, we were nobody before, nobody knew us. And then by step by step, players are, were getting involved. And now since the Corona campaign, uh, we have now at the moment six jerseys up for um, like where people can donate and win the jerseys. That's a special campaign for this month, which is going to this campaign is going to, uh, well, this kind of uh, part of the campaign is going to end on the 2nd of June. So we have 20 players on board. Uh, so still enough to reveal. I'm getting excited every day. And people can donate and win the jersey, try to win the jersey. So they need to check out onegoal.org to see all the great stuff that you have up for auction. Exactly. Click on the homepage on to uh, to get against corona that's our campaign name and then you see our first six jerseys up and of course follow the one goal on social media because then you always get a clue and the hint who is going to be next so they're going to be amazing names um i'm i'm because i know the list so, so I'm, <laughs> I'm like i'm gonna tell everybody oh my god and, uh, just have to be silent, well, so. i know you i know you can't say names but but can you can you give us an estimate of how many of those players played in the world cup last summer oh no i mean like well many of them it's that we have a lot of world cup players a lot of champions a lot of uh champions league players um yeah i i don't even know the numbers anymore because okay so started... so some big names yeah some big names yeah some big <laughs> names i mean we started with lucy bronze and now we have like lena gosling and yeah some amazing names yeah <laughs> Well, Daniela, thank you so much for, for all the work that you and Hedvig have done and, and for taking the time to talk about OneGoal.org today. Thank you so much for your invitation. I really love what you're doing. And it was a pleasure to be in your podcast. Thank you. All 
right time to wrap it up with the back four. As I mentioned in the Jen's Planning segment, we are hearing some buzz about a possible NWSL summer tournament with all nine clubs being based around Salt Lake City and playing games at both their practice facility and also, uh, of course, their main stadium, Rio Tinto. Hopefully we'll get more concrete details about this soon, but of course the challenges to staging such a tournament uh, are numerous, not just logistically, but following all the medical protocols, getting all the pieces in place, even something that we take for granted in terms of broadcast, uh, all the details are being affected as just to have cameramen on the side of the field is going to involve medical protocols. (laughs) Um, They have, you know, we have seen... um, a few people mentioned that there could be fans in the stands. Of course, that would be probably a very select few that are forced to sit pretty far apart. So don't have any images of actual crowds watching these games. And we also know from previous seasons of following NWSL that they're not going to announce anything until all the details are confirmed. So just, you know, make sure you're following NWSL on Twitter and, and keep an open mind because... Uh, this is such a different time. This is an, a new challenge that, uh, you know, no one's had to deal with before and everyone is trying to make the best of it. And if you need some Woso content to tide you over until we have live soccer matches again, especially live women's soccer, uh, you can check out NWSL's YouTube page. They've got four seasons worth of games. So if you're fairly new to following NWSL, there's so much soccer that you can watch. And all games since the 2017 season are accessible on nwslsoccer.com. You can access each game. Just go to the schedule page, pick a year, pick a game, click on the game. The video should auto load. And of course, I have been continuing to post a lot of really old soccer games as I've been able to track them down on my YouTube channel, Woso Nostalgia. Speaking of nostalgia, if you have old women's soccer videos, especially on VHS, um, and they're not something that you've seen on YouTube already, uh, please reach out to me, keeper at keepernotes.com. I would be happy to convert that file to DVD and digital for you at no cost, as long as you send me the tape and allow me to post it up on YouTube so others can enjoy it. So like I said, just give me an email, keeper at keepernotes.com. Let me know what you have. Happy to to go through everybody's old bins of VHS tapes and convert them to DVD and digital. I will send that DVD back to you. And last, um, recently I've posted a lot of a lot of one of a kind, and a couple, and in some cases two of a kind, Woso items for sale on KeeperNotes.com. Uh, you can just click on the store link, and of course while you're there, you can also order the. NWSL Almanac or the finally finished Houston Dash Almanac. I'm so relieved. Got that one done. So now I am starting on a North Carolina Courage Almanac. So check out keepernotes.com. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. I really appreciate everyone who's been listening, especially in this time when we've had so little live soccer to follow. Appreciate everyone who shares this podcast with a friend or tweets about it or posts about it on Reddit. And as always, many thanks uh, to Sean, my producer, for putting it all together, the Beautiful Game Network for hosting it, and Icarus Icarus FC, a great site for getting custom uniforms, for being a sponsor of the podcast. But now she's out.